the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 492 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. If you're a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, apply for Pro Media Fire's growth program today by going to promediafire.com slash growth and by the Unstuck group, download their free resource, How to Restructure Your Church Staff, by going to theunstuckgroup.com slash restructure. Well, I've got Glenn Packiam on the podcast today, and uh, he's someone I've gotten to know over the last year through our mutual friends at Barna. He is a campus pastor and on the leadership team at a megachurch in Colorado Springs. And we have a fascinating conversation about the stacked expectations, I love that phrase, facing pastors, uh, why your job description seems so much more complicated than it did three years ago. We talk about the misuse of power in leadership and why leaders struggle with the illusion of intimacy. So if you care about your soul, if you're hanging in there, if you're thinking about packing it in, and if you're wondering why your job just got so much harder as a leader, I think you're going to love this conversation. Glenn is the Associate Senior Pastor at New Life Church and Lead Pastor of New Life Downtown, one of the eight New Life congregations in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He is a Senior Fellow at Barna. And, um, well, he is also the author of a brand new book called The Resilient Pastor, and he has the Resilient Pastor podcast as well, and he leads the Resilient Pastor cohort. So uh, I think you're going to really enjoy getting to know Glenn if you don't know him, and those of you who do will know why this will be such a great interview. So question for you, would you like to be on the cutting edge of what is driving growth online? If so, our friends at Pro Media Fire are working on a new technology for churches and nonprofits that have never been done before for mission-based organizations to help you grow online. If you want to reach people online and be involved in a new cutting-edge solution at a reasonable price, here are the qualifications for ProMedia Fire's growth program. Then I'll tell you how to apply. Okay, you have to be a church between either 100 and 800 members or a nonprofit with a 100K to 800K annual budget. You also have the budget to spend $100 to $200 a month to grow online. And finally, you or a team member says, I'm in for one hour a month to commit to growing our presence online. If that's you, ProMedia Fire is accepting applications for their growth program now. Their team will interview applicants and work with a select group. Opportunity is very limited, so submit your application for their growth program today by going to promediafire.com growth. That is promediafire.com slash growth. And the great resignation and job switch-ups over the last few years have completely shifted the employment landscape. Churches, as you know, are not immune. So many pastors are now reassessing their staff on this side of the pandemic and wondering, do I have the right people in the right roles? How do I fill the skills gap on my team? Are we understaffed? Are we overstaffed? If you're a church leader asking questions like this, I want to recommend a free resource to you, How to Restructure Your Church Staff by the Unstuck Group. This free guide will walk you through the steps you need to build a new organizational staffing structure that's aligned to your ministry strategy. Your team is the most valuable asset you have for making progress to your vision. And if you want the free resource, 
Go today to theunstuckgroup.com slash restructure. That is theunstuckgroup.com slash restructure. So with all that said, let's jump into my, what I thought was fascinating conversation with Glenn Packiam. Glenn, so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Carrie, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this. Well, so have I. Um, you are really interested in resilience, and it's a theme that that keeps coming. I was talking to our mutual friend, David Kinnaman, the other day, and uh, I don't know that you know this updated statistic or not. It's not finished. Probably by the time it comes out, there'll be an article about it. It'll be in the news. But you know that stat that 29% of pastors yep. thought about packing it in a year ago, yep. uh, beginning of 2021. Then it was like, what was it? 38%? 38 in October. Yep. So apparently the 2022 stat is it's north of 40%. Yeah. It's not getting yeah. better. It's not. Now, it's are, not. does that surprise you? Um, in some ways, no, Carrie. I mean, I was I was in the UK a few weeks ago, and their stat from the Evangelical Alliance there is something like fifty percent. You know, so it doesn't surprise me. It's tough and complicated work in the best of times, and these have not been the best of times. No, okay, but okay, let me play devil's advocate. That's probably not the term <laughs> I'm looking for, Glenn. But um, I I don't see half of all business leaders. Yeah. Thinking about yeah. quit. I mean, we are in the midst of the great resignation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read an interesting piece in the HB, uh, Harvard Business Review, yeah. HBR, about maybe it's not the great resignation. Maybe it's the great reshuffle where people yes. are just thinking, mm-hmm. rethinking everything. But you don't see half of all the stores closing up because yeah. business leaders are going, ah, I don't want to do this yeah. anymore. What is it about? Like, is it weird in ministry or what's going on? I think it's I think it's been weird for a while in terms of expectations but what I think is happening Carrie is that these expectations on pastors they're not replacing one another. For example, you know, decades ago, maybe it was, you know, my pastor needs to be a great theologian or speaker. And then, you know, my pastor needs to be a great therapist or insightful counselor. It's not as if those expectations have replaced one another. I think they've just stacked. And so we just keep adding to it, you know, so it's theologian, communicator, counselor, uh, entrepreneur, social activist, political commentator, and and the, it's it's like that Jenga block. You know, it's just about yeah. to tip over because we keep stacking expectations on it. Okay, let's let's talk about that a little bit because that really resonates for a moment. I love the idea of stacked expectations, and I've had dozens, if not hundreds, of conversations with leaders, church leaders, over the last two years who are like. I never thought I was going to end up being a political referee, have to comment on every global event, social movement. Like that does like, you know, I left day-to-day leadership in the church in 2015. Mm-hmm. I was re- maybe once or twice, they were like, you need to say something. But there, there wasn't that daily pressure. Is yeah. that new? Is that self-imposed, self-inflicted? Has the culture uh, changed? What's going on? It is. I think it is new. I, I think it's a little bit self-imposed, but I think it's really fueled by social media. So we kind of have the hashtag movements that put yeah. pressure and, and, and then influential people on social media who are not pastors will say things like, if your pastor doesn't address XYZ this Sunday from the pulpit, time for a new church. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen that with every different issue. Um, over the last several years, now I, oh, last couple of years, and I don't. Just to be fair, I think some of these things need to be addressed. And you know, we think of Karl Barth, was it, who said, you know, the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in the other. So yes, we are trying to read and make sense of the world around us as we as, as we think biblically and theologically. But 
when the agenda is being set by a sort of amorphous social media mob, sometimes it feels like that that's that's a, an enormous amount of pressure. Now it's not just, hey, you need to speak into this. Now it's speak into it in this way at this time, in this instant or else, you know, do. Yeah. What 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 you were saying kind of resonates. Do you have a filter? Or what are the issues that need to be addressed and what can be left alone? And as you were talking, the the idea, Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about this, but, you know, if C.S. Lewis was alive today, like he did a lot of his writing in the Second World War, right? Yes. But his writing is not about Germany versus Britain versus, you know, the United States versus Japan. It's not, it's not hashtag trending 1943. Mm. He... And and yet, you know, you can see in the screw tape letters and other works that, yeah, clearly there's some war going on in the background, yeah, a world yeah. war. What is the filter that you think is helpful and healthy? I think as pastors, we have to think through a kingdom lens. So, and and sometimes we're guilty of not. We kind of reduce everything down to a, a transaction right. decision for Jesus, uh, eternal life kind of stuff, which of course is is extremely important. But if you think about not just the gospel as in this good news of forgiveness, but the gospels, look at the life of Christ. Look at the things that were important to Jesus. And when I say a kingdom lens, that's what I mean. Read the gospels and you'll start to see what the priorities were in the mission of Jesus. And again, if the church is the body of Christ, then the mission of Jesus is meant to continue through us. So, okay, where are the poor or the marginalized? Where are the outcasts? Where are the people that um, have been taken advantage of? Where are the people who are exploiting others, tax collectors? You know, where are those equivalents in our world? So we have to think through that lens. But then I, I also believe very strongly, Carrie, that pastors have to use biblical categories for talking about these things. The, the, the trick with social issues or the pressure to be a commentator today is that we're being asked to adopt language and labels that didn't really originate from a, a theological or biblical world. Now, they are like these circles that overlap. And so someone says a word like justice or the oppressed, and you're like, well, there's overlap there. But the biblical way of speaking about such things might be different uh, than the world's way. And I'll just, I'll, I'll give one example of this. Okay, so yeah. we, we talk a lot in our world about power dynamics and oppressor and oppressed and all of that. And so again, there's overlapping language. And if we're not careful, we'll borrow the wrong circle of, um, uh, the wrong set of terms, if you will, rather than the biblical set of terms. So when the Bible talks about the oppressed, it doesn't make this assumption that we make that the oppressed person is always pure and the oppressor is always evil. In fact, in the Old Testament, you know, Israel's an oppressed people. God delivers them. And then the Bible shows us that the very first thing the oppressed, liberated people do is worship a golden calf, you know? And so so the Bible has it, it, the Bible's an equal opportunity offender in that sense. It's going to say to us, wherever you are in the power dynamic, you're called to repent. So, you know, the nice thing is you're not just an academic on these issues. You're a practitioner. I mean, you work at a large influential church in Colorado Springs. You're in the front lines, like a lot of leaders listening to this. What are, you know, how do you decide when to jump in? And have you, you know, talk about a time when you did it well, another time when you're like, "Uh uh-oh, that was a mistake. (laughs) 
I, I think it helps to have a team. And we are, you know, we have eight different congregations. We're all doing live preaching in our different locations. And we meet together once a, mo- a week to kind of go over what we're going to address uh, in the sermon, just in general, go over our sermon notes, you know. So it does help to say, hey, I think I'm going to push on this a little bit, you know, after the January 6th thing. Hey, I think this is what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to say it this way, you know. And 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 that uh, safety and accountability, in the academic world, that's peer review. And pastors, <laughs> pastors need some peer review, you know. We, yeah. we make our sermons in these little cloisters, and then we go deliver them. Then we're like, uh-oh, I didn't think about the repercussions. And there's a there's something we can learn from that peer review thing of, hey, what if you ran your notes by a few key members of your church? Maybe you're like, well, I don't have a staff like that. Fine. Run it by a few key voices in your congregation, and, and they, they might hear resonances that you didn't mean and that you didn't hear. Um, so the times I've done it well, I've always been saved by other people's perspectives who've said, you know, when you said that phrase, that kind of means something different to this group of people or whatever. Um, the times I've done it poorly are are when usually not in a sermon, but usually when I post something on social media reactively, um, and I, I needed more time to think. I needed more time to be aware of the, the people that are going to be reading this. Yeah. Um, how much when you think about that forty plus percent factor, mm. whatever it turns yeah. out to be? I think David said it was going to probably land at forty one, forty two once they crunched all the numbers. Mm. So. Mm. Uh, watch for that when it goes live. But, you know, with with four and ten pastors thinking of yeah. leaving ministry, not their church, but ministry, how much do you think the current online climate, and, and by that I also mean the in-person dynamic of angry yeah. emails being mm-hmm. fingered after a service going, hey, you need to yeah. talk about this or never talk about this or whatever. How much do you sense, because your, your new book, The Resilient Pastor, which for those of you who are watching, yeah is uh, available now. Uh, I mean, you have a lot of data. So this yeah, was, yeah. what do you think that has added to the load? Well, in, in many ways, Carrie, the pandemic, and I've heard you say this, was an accelerator of trends that are already in progress. You know, uh, in, in some other ways, it was a great revealer. It kind of pulled the curtain back and said, have you noticed that the world has changed? And, and honestly, yes. Okay, so our, is part of what's leading pastors to consider quitting this sort of discouraging uh, interaction with people or maybe the lack of people showing up, lack of engagement, whether online or in person? Sure. But I think in other ways, it, we're being faced with the stark reality that, hey, the world has shifted, culture is changing, there are new forces at play here, and we've been trying to ignore it, we've kind of had our head in the sands, we've sort of had a little little smoke and mirror show of, no, 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 I, everything's great. And I'm not a doomsday prophet, I know there's always more nuance to the picture, I'm not trying to say it's all over or whatever, but I think what the pandemic did is it, it not only accelerated some of those trends, but it unveiled, it revealed the real condition of the people in our churches. And, I, and in, in the book, you know, there's there's an unveiling of this sort of discipleship crisis, but there's also an unveiling of these cultural shifts that have been at play for a number of years that are now just sort of full bore. Well, let's talk about that. I'm getting ready for uh, a couple of fresh talks in Houston uh, as mm-hmm. I record this episode with you. And I was working on the slide deck this morning, and I'm using Barna data like everybody else in church yeah. world. And I've got graphs leading into 2020, and church attendance has been doing this yes. for two yes. decades. Like in many yeah. ways, people are like, where did everybody go? It's like, we've been asking that question for decades, literally. Yeah. And so we got yeah. a spike. Like I think 2030 arrived eight years early. In other words, we probably <laughs> would have been here 
five, 10 right. years from now. Right. It just got here super fast. Christ, crisis is an accelerator and a revealer, as you indicated. Um, but you identify, and I want to go into them there. I'm just looking at my notes. Um, yeah. yeah, so you've got three cultural factors, at least, that are mm-hmm. impacting the church. You talk mm-hmm. about pluralism, paganism, and individualism. Can you unpack those for us, Glenn? Yeah, I would love to. And the metaphor that I use, Carrie, some years ago there was an earthquake in the you know the base of the Indian Ocean, and it resulted in this horrific tsunami that affected you know my region of the world. I grew up in Southeast Asia. I'm from Malaysia. And, was that in 2004? You know, that one. That's right. I remember that's that. right. That, that was bo- after Christmas. Boxing Day. day yeah, after day Christmas. after Christmas. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, a hundred foot waves. I mean, hit hit in Indonesia, beaches in Thailand. Awful, awful. And I don't want to, you know, belittle the, the real tragedy, but I also want to use that as a powerful sort of image for us. So it was started by the shift in tectonic plates. Carrie, I think what's been shifting for a while is Christianity and culture. Um, Christianity and culture used to have a much easier or friendlier relationship to one another in the West. But I think what's been brewing for decades, as you said, is that these plates have been rubbing. There's there's friction. They're bouncing. They're hitting. And now the earthquake, there's been a seismic sort of shift where culture has this uneasy relationship to, to Christianity now. There's some values of Christianity that they want to maintain, you know, humility, kindness, and all that. But there's a lot of values they don't, a lot of convictions they don't want to maintain. Mm. So then you, you have this shift. But then you have this surge, and the surge is the three things you mentioned, Carrie. The, the surge, uh, it's like the rising floodwaters of uh, a new kind of pluralism. So let me unpack that. Uh, pluralism, again, I grew up in Malaysia. You know, I had, uh, Christians are 10% of the people. Uh, I went to school with Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, you know, very, very normal for me. But the new kind of pluralism is not the coexistence of other religions. It's the syncretism of other religions. Ah. It's, the, it's, the, it's the notion that we can mix and match. So this new pluralism in the West is, as I heard one uh, uh, prize-winning author give a speech, he said, I'm a Catholic Buddhist. And I thought, I thought, well, what, what, what's that? You, you know. So it's this idea that we can mix and match. And sometimes I, I point out to people in conversation, actually, what you're doing is religious colonialism. You know, the way that old empires would move people from one part of the world to the other to work on their plantations or whatever. You're doing that with religious ideas. So you like redemption from Christianity, but you like Zen from from Buddhism and you like Nirvana from you know, and, and you're mixing and matching. So huh. that's the new that's the new pluralism. And you can interrupt me anytime. I'll keep going. Well the, the I'd, second, like, I'd like to do a little more on pluralism then. Because that's really yeah, interesting yeah. that that's a form of colonialism. Another buzzword <laughs> these days, right? In the yeah, culture. Can yeah. you can you explain that a little bit more? Because that is like, okay, yeah. I'm from Canada and we have been yeah. postmodern, post-Christian for decades, right? Mm-hmm. So what's happening in the yeah. U.S. now and everyone's going, what happened to my country? It's like, we've seen this coming for a long time based on, on mm-hmm. where we've been. And Europe was decades, if not a century ahead of us. But that whole syncretistic, yeah. that idea yes. of, you know, well, I'm a little bit Buddhist, but I do meditation. And I think Jesus is a good guy and he's got some good teaching and I've also, you know, interested in my own thoughts. Like, how is that colonialism? Well, I say colonialism because so so the the empires of Europe or whatever, you know, centuries ago, put themselves at the center of power. And so they could move Mm. spices around. The reason we enjoy drinking tea or or the reason tikka masala is so popular in the UK. I mean, all of those, that's the result of of an age of empires, if you will. 
And today, the individual is the empire. The individual is making their own religion uh, in the same way that one empire used to remake the world. Wow. And so the individual can say, yeah, I'll take a bit of this. But what they don't realize, so it, it always sounds like humility, doesn't it, Carrie? They're like, <laughs> oh, I don't want to be exclusive. I think, you know, a little of the... But, but actually, if you were to say to a Muslim or to say to a, a, a person who practices Judaism um, that I'm going to take a bit of this and a bit of that, they would be very offended that you would do, you're doing violence to an ancient faith. Mm. Um, and that's why I think it's a, kind of, it's a kind of religious imperialism or a religious colonialism because you've made yourself the powerful person who can mix and match from other, other faiths. Wow. So meism is colonialism. I've never had that thought. That's, a, that's <laughs> very, very, fa- I call it meism. Right, because I think yeah, that's yeah, basically yeah. where we're at as a culture. Okay, anything else yeah. on pluralism? This is this is good. No, we can no, linger it, a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay, talk about paganism. Yeah. So, so paganism in a, you know kind of the the technical sense of that word is think of idols in the ancient world, the pagan world, where you if you needed fertility, you went to this one. If you needed a victory, you'd go to that one. If you needed the crops, you know you have a slew of uh, of idols. But the the point of paganism is they're earthbound gods that help you meet your earthly needs. Earthbound gods that help you meet your earthly needs. So the new paganism, we're not we're not going to earthbound gods that we can see, but it's things like technology, politics, economics that help me get what I want. So if I want a happier life, if I want more peace, if I want more prosperity, I'm not looking for transcendence. I'm not looking mm. for some sort of transcendent answer, I'm saying, well, I, there's got to be a tech solution for that, or there's got to be a, 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 po- a political solution for that, or there's got to be an economic answer for that. So that's the, that's the, the mantra would be, hey man, I live in the real world, you know? Uh, and, and gosh, don't we hear that in the church where they, they worship Jesus, but actually their religion is like a kind of paganism because they're saying, I live in the real world, so I'm going to rely on X, Y, Z to take care of my actual needs instead of a full faith and dependence on Jesus. Okay, so paganism, and then this shouldn't be a surprise, individualism, which has been bubbling yeah. Yeah. under the surface the whole time, but explain that. And you named it, the meism stuff. I mean, basically, it's the it's my life. Um, and, and maybe one way to think of it is I get to construct my own sense of self, and then my constructed self is the highest good. So whatever I decide I am, that becomes the highest good and the aim of all of my pursuits. And then not only that, but you actually need to affirm my constructed self. And of course, we see this in some some key conversations about gender and that sort of stuff, but, but it shows up in all kinds of conversations. how a lot of parents raise their kids uh, to be really honest yeah. and transparent yeah. about it. It's like, that's, yeah. that's the message, right? Yeah. 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 And, and so when I think about pastoring to these people, it's not as if these, the surge of these floodwaters are just out there, you know? So going back to that tsunami metaphor, earthquake, um, you know, rise of waves. And then there's this messy aftermath, Carrie. So it, it, it's not as clean as saying, well, Christians don't believe that. I'm pretty sure <laughs> Christians have been affected by these sort of cultural ways of thinking and they don't even realize it. And so God, you decide what your highest goal is for your life. And then God becomes kind of a means to that end. So a pastor starts preaching about sacrifice or giving sacrificially or serving. Uh, and they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That doesn't fit me and my my best for my Sunday morning. You know, I don't want to volunteer. <laughs> so so we, we, we're confronting all of that. Wow. So that's the cultural ethos. That's the the soup that we're in 
as a culture, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. interesting. And it's kind of infected and affected Christian teaching as well. Like you can see it really impacting doctrine, theology. And I'm not saying that as a critic. I'm saying that it's probably infected mine too. Oh, it, it's infected mine for sure. And I, I think about that. I'm aware of that. I uh, spent a lot of my early years in ministry as a worship leader, songwriter, got to travel and do a lot of that stuff. And so then when I did my doctoral research, I researched kind of some of this, you know, content of our worship songs. And and Carrie, even when I was studying particularly hope in a worship context, these songs of hope tend to be so me-focused, you know, my breakthrough, my miracle, my moment, my self-actualization, essentially, you know. So we, we've, we're we affected by this. That's why I say it's a messy aftermath. The debris eh, after the tsunami of 2000, that, the debris was everywhere. And the debris is everywhere. The debris is in the church. It's outside the church. Uh, as one philosopher, James K.A. Smith, put it, uh, believers are tempted to doubt and doubters are tempted to believe. I mean, it's it just sort of everything is going both ways here. So it's really easy to look at that, throw up your hands and go, this is impossible. But yeah. we also, <laughs> we're going to get to solutions, okay? So this isn't doom and gloom. But often I find 90% of health and leadership is diagnosing the problem. If you have an unrealistic diagnosis or a misdiagnosis of the problem, you will never find the remedy. And what I found really helpful about your book is that you spend a lot of time diagnosing the problem. John Mark Comer has done a very similar thing with, uh, what is it, uh, Live No Lies? Live mm -hmm. No Lies, yeah. And, yeah, and no you know, we had a long conversation about that last fall. But um, <laughs> I'm not sure we need an external enemy to defeat the church these days. We seem perfectly capable <laughs> of shooting ourselves in the foot, maybe even in the head, at times, what are the internal factors that are driving the ill health of the church, deconversion, and, you know, people leaving the church? I mean, we've got scandal, we've got abuse, we've got... Mm -hmm. And every time you think it's over, there's another wave. It's just one more headline. And it's yeah. like, come on, really? Yeah. You're so right, Carrie. And it's, it's tragic. It's true. Um, I've been at our church, New Life, you know, for 22 years six years into my time, so now, 15 and a half years ago, our own, you know, founding senior pastor um, was was caught in a pretty public scandal. And so you, you are absolutely right. And I think if I were to boil it down to one phrase, I would say it's it comes down to the misuse of power or the misuse of authority. Um, how have we eroded our own credibility? Because we've mishandled power and authority. There's but a lot to say about that, that, but... That's the heart of okay, it. Okay, yeah. can you can you explain a little more power and authority? How have we abused it? Yeah, yeah. I, so so here's maybe a, a biblical picture of it that will then help our imagination here. Um, Israel's first king was right. Saul, and when Israel wanted a king, Samuel said, "You know what kings do? Kings take." And he says this Hebrew word over and over again: "They take your daughters, they take your sons, they take your wine. They take, you know, take, 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 take." And that's the first temptation of the leader is that we will misuse our power to take for our own gain, for our own ends, for our own dreams, for our own ambitions, for our own egos. The first temptation of every leader is to misuse our power to take and instead of to give. And then the, the second thing Saul does is he makes this sort of rash and hasty vow. You know, anyone who eats will die. And then he doesn't know his son Jonathan has had some honey, you know, and the other soldiers are like, oh my gosh, you're going to kill your son. 
I, I have been guilty of this and I have experienced leaders who speak too hastily. Uh, Carrie, one of the things I appreciate about you is you're helping us slow down, you're helping us think, you're asking important questions. And too often what happens to, to a leader, the more um, sort of powerful they feel, the more hasty they speak. And, and they make sort of brash statements about, uh, you know, it could be anything. It could be cultural commentary. It could be biblical stuff. It could be false promises from the Bible, you know. So this hasty kind of stuff. And then the third thing you see with Saul, of course, the famous story where he's, he's you know, offering the sacrifice he's not supposed to. That's what, what I think of that. I think of that as moving outside of your lane. The, 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 maybe the most common way leaders misuse their power is when we, we step outside the limitations of ourself. Um, Saul had limitations. He was the king, not the priest. You're not supposed to do the sacrifice thing. And, and for us, that could be, you know, I've, I've heard, unfortunately, pastors say things like, to people struggling with mental health. Just pray more. You don't need any of those counseling. Or anything. And that's, you're stepping outside your lane. That's one example of it. But I think another example of it is where something gets too large or we've let it for too long and we don't recognize that we've hit our own limits and we just want to keep going and keep going and keep going, not realizing that the thing has outgrown us and we don't want to admit it. And so now we're just misusing and mishandling power. I'd like to spend a little more time on the misuse of power. There was a very similar to what you're sharing here, a message I heard maybe 15 years ago by Andy Stanley. And, you know, we have partnership with North Point, the whole deal. So hugely influenced my life. And I think the series we can, my team can probably find this in the archives on YouTube somewhere, but I think it was called Power Play. And I remember the title package and it was like these little marionettes on a red um, velvet uh, curtain. And he talked about the misuse of power and that in history, power always flows up. All the benefits go to the person at the top. You get the money, you get the women, you get the servants, you get the power, you get the privilege, you get everything flows up. And he contrasted that with Jesus, where when you're at the yes. top, everything flows down. That Jesus takes a sacrifice yes. and everyone else gets the benefits. And that hit me like a sledgehammer between the eyes. And I think about that all the time. And you look at John 13, right? Where Jesus is, yes, that's, that's it. it. What does he do? He's like, okay, Father's given him all authority and he takes off his robe, he gets down on his knees, and he washes their feet, knowing that one of them is going to betray, uh, another is going to deny, and everybody else is going to flee, except perhaps John. We're not sure about John. He may have stuck around. You know, and I'm, I'm, that, that has really influenced me because that is how power works, right? Unless you stop it, the benefits, the privileges from parking spots to money to everyone just does what you say, and soon... As, you know, Andy also said, you know, you're surrounded. If, if, if you don't listen, you're eventually surrounded by people who have nothing to say. And I just, I think about that all the time. And I certainly do not get it right. But there, and you see that when you, when you see those headlines, when you see that scandal, yes. usually yes. that's, oh, all the benefits flowed up. What else is mm -hmm. wrong with that model? Like, let's unpack that a little bit. Well, just to affirm what you said, I mean, everything you said, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding along, you know, for the people who are listening, not yeah. watching, I'm nodding along, Carrie, because it's, it's dead on. And John 13 is exactly the place of reflection that I go in this, in the book, the, the chapter on credibility, I end with this reflection on power and you're exactly right. Um, but I think, 
I think the reason we don't, um, I mean, obviously the, our, our flesh is bent in the wrong direction. We don't want to do live that way. Um, but I think the other part of this, Carrie, is we, we've forgotten the actual source of our power. Mm. And, and what I mean by this is, you know, there were previous eras where the, the, the priest, you think of the medieval time, you know, the, the holy person of God, the holy man of God, whatever, they got they, they had some sort of mystical power and you're like, oh, that, that only they can do this to the bread and the wine or whatever. But then you get on the Reformation era, post-Enlightenment era, and 1800s, you know, all of a sudden, it's, it's really the source of power for the pastor comes from their education. Yeah. They were one of the few who were literate. They could read. They could speak. He has all the languages. ideas. They she has the all the ideas. They got all the ideas. Exactly. So, and that that is still with us. Where the the, the sort of the expert, the you know the edu- educated one, and so we sometimes think, oh, that's that's the source of my power because I went and got this degree or I got went to seminary. But th- there was actually a shift historically from education. Think of the Jonathan Edwards era in America to the, you know, fast forward to the 1900s where it wasn't about education, it was about institutions, the institutions that we built. And so then all of a sudden, if you were connected to the Presbyterian church and that institution had its heyday, you know, uh, mid-1900s, something like that, and then you kind of have the mega church boom in the 1980s and 90s. So a, a pastor starts to believe, oh, I have this power because of the size of my institution. Power and authority, power and authority. Right? Yep. Power and authority, Right. And, and then now, I think the next iteration of that is about a platform, uh, social media. So someone's like, well, I, I got 100,000 Instagram followers. That's my power, you know. And I think all of those things are a lie. That's not the real source of, of true power. The real source of power is from Jesus himself. And that's not just a Sunday school answer. The, the Gospels tell us that when Jesus called his disciples, he called them to himself, and then he sent them out to go heal the sick and and preach and all this stuff. And similarly, when the quote-unquote unschooled disciples were doing miracles in the book of Acts, people said, these are people who had been with Jesus. So the source of our authority determines the shape of our authority. If, if we think our, the source is our education or our institution or our social media influence, then our shape will be like those things. It'll be, it will carry it in that sort of stuffy way that higher ed ca- carries its power or will carry it in the brag- braggadocious way that CEOs carry their power or will carry it in the way that influencers carry their power. But if the source of our authority is Jesus and we recognize that, then it starts to determine the shape of our authority. Really interesting line of thinking, because you're right. It's not like Jesus did send them out with power and with authority, but it was a very different kind of power. It was a very different kind of authority, and it didn't stem yes. from the follower count or amount of downloads or yes. size of church or number of locations or prestige or bank account or any of that. Boy, just pause, marinate on that for about, 12 weeks and then come back and listen to the rest of the interview, everybody. Okay. That, that was, that's, uh, that's worth spending some time on. I want to talk about the third misuse of power, which you highlighted, which is going outside of your lane. And that sort of comes back to where we started in this interview with stacked expectations, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know about you, the older I get, and I'm closer to 60 than my 50th birthday now. I'm just like, my lane is so narrow of expertise. Every year it's like, yeah, I'm actually not good at that either. And that's one of the reasons I don't speak out on every issue. It's like, I don't think I can contribute to the dialogue in a meaningful, helpful, constructive way. 
maybe I can bring someone on the podcast to talk about it who's an expert. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you resist stacked expectations? And how do you resist the temptation to be a counselor, to be a, a marriage therapist, to be a savior, so to speak, in so many, mm. or an authority on so many subjects. Mm. How do you resist that? It, it takes a quite a bit of self-awareness, the good kind of self-awareness, you know, and, you know, so, so much of this, could, we could link this, Carrie, to saying, you know what, if leaders would slow down and be with Jesus and learn, learn contemplative prayer where we're listening and being quiet, you know, so much of our modes of prayer are, you know, active and talking and, and outward. But there's another mode of prayer that is quiet and listening. And I think if we, if we embrace some of that, what we'll learn to actually come to the surface is, oh, there's some things I need to confess. And there's some things, you talked about naming the complexity of the challenges. Yes. And also naming the sin within us and naming the temptations to, uh, the temptation to think that, uh, you know, we can do everything. Um, Maybe even the, the 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 scripts in our head from our families of origin that we have to be better, we have to hold it all together. And Carrie, what's helped me over the years is embracing deeper work like that, uh, seeing a spiritual director, learning these spiritual practices of of naming these scripts that I I inherited from my growing up, uh, and and being able to sit with Jesus with all of that and saying, yeah, I I am free to say I can't, and I am free. And I'm free to say, I need help. And I think what that then opens the door to, from that place of deep awareness and contemplation and dwelling with God, we're then able to actually disciple our congregations in what their expectations of us should be. You know, Eugene Peterson years ago said, pastors that are busy are either lazy or they're vain. <laughs> and, and, what, and, and what he meant by that, and I had the privilege, you know, 10 years ago or so of spending a few days in their home with Eugene and Jan, a memory that I'll always treasure. But what he meant by that was we're, we're lazy. We don't take the time to actually say, hey, actually, I, that's not what I do. This is not who uh, a pastor is in your life. Um, or we're vain. We're like, we want to feel like we're that important, like we're the center of the universe. So when we have that deep place in God, we can help our congregations understand what is right to expect of us and what is not right to expect of us. But then secondly, it allows us to then ask others for help. I mean, Carrie, the way forward for the church, the way forward for pastors, the way out of these stacked expectations is to is to truly be creative and collaborative in how we think about teams and leadership. Because it was never meant to be, the church was never meant to be built on one individual's gifts. Well, you know, it often, and we have Roman Catholic listeners, and I have some good Roman Catholic friends, so this is not one of those historic barbs, but yeah, one of the yeah. Protestant critiques of the Roman Catholic faith was that it was priestly and that we had the priesthood of all believers. And I think we pretty much undone that in the Protestant evangelical world where we're back to a professional that cares mm -hmm. For everything, and that—that's a real temptation in a large church where it's built on the preaching or teaching or of of one or a handful of charismatic individuals. Um, yeah. Okay. The, the the question is, yeah. like, you know, you're part of a large church. How do you, how do you check that in your own life, Carrie? It's yeah. tough, and it it I know the Achilles heel of of large churches and. 
And yes, you know, I lead a congregation that is much smaller than the sort of mothership thing, but I preach it, you know, but we're all connected. And and I have a, the kind of role where I oversee, you know, a number of the congregations. And it, the more influence you have, the more uh, uh, distant you are from people, the more removed you are. And I try not to be. I mean, I, even so, in my, any given week, I have, you know, half a dozen appointments with congregants on a good week, you know, but... But even so, you you recognize you're losing touch, and there's some and there's some distance. And and people who who lead larger churches or larger organizations, your discipleship focus becomes the next layer of leaders under you, much more so than it is uh, the congregation. And, and that that's difficult um, because you can it can be insulating. It can um, remove you from the realities that people are wrestling with. So it it, it does take a good and honest community. It takes the right relationships. I mean, that's the that's one of the other big pieces of resilience is the importance of true, honest, um, and and different kinds of relationships in our lives. Well, I want to talk about motives. Um, how do you, I, I, I think very few people get into ministry or impact organizations from a Machiavellian kind of sinister. Yeah. I mean, there's a handful, I'm sure, people who were evil from the start. But I think most of us start out very, very ideal. But there's a there's a, a hint of selfishness in all of us, and I find even at this stage in life, I'm questioning my motives on a hopefully daily basis, and if not, very regular basis. How do you know? Like, do you ever get just pure motives, or how do you keep them sorted from the selfish to the altruistic to everything in between? I don't think you ever get a hundred percent purity, and that's why. Honest contemplative prayer, you know, is a piece of this. But the, I, I alluded to just a moment ago the right kind of relationships. I, I think you need trusted and honest and longtime friends who will recognize when things are a little bit off and have the freedom to say that to you and to say, "Hey, something's, you know, not right." And and a lot of pastors will say, "Well, I got my spouse." Well, that's good. It's not, but it's not enough. It's not enough. You need some other friends. And I would even say. What we're we're learning about the complexity of the human psyche and our mental and emotional health and the way those all of those things interact with spiritual health, I actually think we need therapists and counselors and spiritual directors too. You know, my wife is trained as a counselor; that's her background. So every every day, I feel like I'm learning something new. But I have spent many years seeing a spiritual director. I'm not currently at the moment seeing a, a therapist or a spiritual director, but I'm I'm looking to re-engage that, and I think. I think it's something that we have to um, submit ourselves to. That's the other piece of, of, of power, is the longer you stay or the larger the thing gets, so again, length and um, size, um, duration and size, you might say, uh, uh, the, the longer you stay or the larger the thing gets, the harder it is for you to have anyone that can actually tell you no. And, and you're not actually submitting to anyone. You're like, oh, I've got my board and I've got my account. Okay. But there's a different kind of submission that happens when you go to a counselor, for example, because you're putting yourself in this vulnerable place and they're going to ask you soul questions or motive questions like you just you just raised, Kiri. And, and, and great elders, they often, often elders meetings. I mean, I've been an elder at our church for a lot of years. They're great elders, but there's so much high level strategy stuff we're talking about um, that, that a percentage of the conversation is, hey, how are you? But also, speaking of people not being trained for that task, they're not trained to do that kind of work, to probe into the motives or, or um, idiosyncrasies or dysfunctions of a leader. We have to prioritize that enough to do our own work um, with trained, trained professionals. 
One of the questions that's emerged more and more uh, from leaders that I respect and follow is with scandal after scandal, clergy abuse, sexual abuse in the church, the whole list of stuff that just, you know, breaks hearts to the point where it's almost numbing at the frequency that this is being revealed. And I'm glad it's being revealed. I'm glad we're having those conversations. But you wonder if the system is broken. You wonder if there is something rotten at the core of the apple. Do you think there is something rotten at the core of the apple? Or is it human frailty? Or is it like, is there something institutional and systemic about our approach to things that needs to be fixed? No, that's a big question. I think we have to ask those. Yeah, no, I think we have to ask that question. And when we when the scandal happened at New Life in late 2006, I was asking myself that question. My friends, my colleagues were asking ourselves that question. And and I, you know, people always say, "Well, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater." Okay, right. But right. on the other hand, there's another question to ask, which is, what kind of community made that kind of character possible? Right. I mean, uh, that's the question from the ethicist uh, Stanley Hauerwas. You know, what kind of community made that kind of character possible? Or the the way you're saying it, what sort of system made these sorts of decisions possible? So, yes, those are the kinds of, we have to evaluate things on every level, not necessarily in radical revolutionary, throw it all out kinds of ways, maybe. Um, But I'll tell you, biographically, I'll tell you some of the things that, that happened for us. So it was... That was 2006, 2007, our new senior pastor, Brady Boyd, uh, came in. Then we had a shooting that happened um, in our uh, in our church, a gunman, you know, randoms, you know, sort of opened fire in the parking lot. Very, very tragic day. Two people lost their lives. So we're reeling from all of this stuff, you know. And in 2009, so this is now a few years removed from this, I started moving away from being a worship leader, song, you know, uh, worship pastor kind of role to being a, a preaching pastor. I, I had a Sunday night service that I was starting and leading. And I began to realize, Carrie, that it, it, I'm not changing anything except for the person who's on the platform. It's just sort of, here's the thing, same old, same old, just insert new name, insert new character, you know? It's like, and, and, I, and I thought at the same time, I was re-engaging, kind of reading about church history and, and, and Christian worship and I realized there's there's one particular worship practice that Christians did at the beginning, and they did for they you know in many circles for a couple thousand years they've been doing this that we in the independent world have sort of forgotten, and that's this practice of coming to the Lord's table. And what I realized, if you think about the the song section, the sermon, and then the table, uh, what I realized is in the singing, and I've been the worship leader, we can mess things up. We can take all the limelight. We can make people uh, pay too much attention to us. The, the preacher, the, the sermon, that can go wrong. But this moment when you come to the table, that's almost a moment where you kind of like John the Baptist, you stand to the side and you say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we, you know, um, the, the, the business writer, yeah. Charles Duhigg, talks about the power of habit, right? And he talks about a keystone habit. You got to change one thing that then changes other things. For us, weekly communion became a keystone habit that triggered other changes. So we started doing weekly communion. What that did was it started to reorient our services. And we started to say, you know what? This isn't about the preacher ratcheting up a hype or ending with this surprise ending or whatever. You know, this was every week we're going to end the sermon by saying, Lord, have mercy, and Lord, thank you for your grace, and, you know, and, and, and we go receive, and then we are sent back out in the world. And that practice began to actually enshrine new priorities. 
And so when you talk about changes to the system or changes to the community carry, it's not enough to say, well, let's just try harder, do better. You know, even what I said, see more, seek more therapy and all that. Great. And, and think about what practices you're repeatedly doing because your practices enshrine your priorities. And for too, for too long, our churches have had practices that enshrine the priority of the uber gifted individual on the stage. We got screens on it. We got Instagram reels of them. And it's like, well, can we have some other practices that decenter the individual? You know, one of the reasons I think this is such an important conversation, you ever read the book 10% Happier by Dan Harris? No, I haven't. Oh, it's interesting. As a new lifer, you should, because mm-hmm. he's got a whole section. Uh, Dan was an ABC News reporter, or is, I guess. And um, he was given the religion beat for a little while. And so he started investigating mega churches with a degree of suspicion. And he writes very fondly of Brady's predecessor, uh, Ted, Hag- yeah, Ted Haggard. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, of course, that big sexual scandal back, sex and drugs and everything yeah. back in 2006. Yeah. And I'm reading through the book and he's speaking of Ted with the greatest affection. And I'm like, you you know how this ends, right? Like, you know how this ends. You know how this ends. And then he tells the story in the book. But he ends up calling Ted a year after the abuse. And he's like, you know, there were lots of problems at New Life, lots of problems with that pastor. But he had something I have not seen in so many other religions I've explored. And I read that and my heart just broke. Like he was able to find the good in the mess. And I don't want there to have to be a mess to find the good, but it just shows us that the world is actually longing for what Jesus offers. And if we could get rid of some of the scandal, if we could just, you know, maybe do this a little bit differently or a lot differently, that somehow, you know, the, the idea of reaching the world is not a pipe dream at all. So anyway, I would I would encourage you to read the book. It's fantastic. Man, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating, Carrie. And and you're right. There is something beautiful about a a, a a person who, you know, carries Jesus and even when we carry it in broken ways, but how much more radiant oh, yeah. would it be, you know, but if we carry it? But it was the longing that Dan wrote yeah. that with as yeah. a non-believer that really made me and he ended yes. up with, you know, he calls it Jubu, Jewish Buddhism. Uh, Buddhism, I should say, where he's basically meditating and it's secular Buddhism and the whole deal. And I think that's where he's still wow. at. I hope to have him on the podcast someday. Uh, but seems like Amazing. a fantastic guy, but that just really, really uh, broke my heart to read that, that he was longing for what mm. Christians had, but couldn't yeah. quite find it in us. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about relationships. You identify relationships as being a challenge yeah. for pastors. We've revisited that theme numerous times. I think it's a leadership issue. Leaders are lonely. And you said something mm-hmm. earlier on that I want to go back to. You said the larger it mm-hmm. gets and the more influential it gets, the harder it is to find someone who will tell you the truth. But the harder it is, I find, to em- to find somebody who understands the problems you're wrestling with. Like when, when a church of 20,000, you have a problem, who do you call? Right. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole lot yeah. of churches of 20,000. Yeah. And, you know, even with this podcast, if I'm trying to figure out what do I do next? Well, we're at a point where mm-hmm. we're, we're in the top 1% of global podcasts. So I do have friends in that space, but it's a small group. And I wonder if there is something mm-hmm. in leadership that is that makes it complicated and success makes it harder 
which is one of the reasons why I think you see so many successful leaders struggle and perhaps fail. Comment on that? You're exactly right. You know, you're exactly right. Success does make all of those things harder for all of those reasons. You know, um, uh, you find fewer people that you can relate with, but you also start <laughs> yeah, to believe your own press and you sort of think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe uh-huh. I don't need it, you know? Um, but I, I think, you know, Carrie, I've, I've reflected a little bit on the relational dynamics for leaders and for pastors in particular, our work is relational work. And so everything we do has a bit of this illusion of intimacy. And I want to be careful. I, I don't mean that we don't actually know the people that we are meeting with or that we don't actually love them. We truly do. And we're truly loved by them. But I say illusion of intimacy because pastors get dropped in to some of the most intimate moments in a person's life. I mean, I, I remember I, I've been several times in sitting in a person's living room where this, the two, husband and wife, are, you know, they're, they're, they're in tears and they're saying, we don't know what to do next or we don't know how we get past this fight we're having. I, one night, a person calls it, we didn't know who else to call. And so we called you. So, so this isn't a post on Facebook. This isn't a neighbor. You get dropped in these most intimate moments, you know, funerals, hospital rooms, living rooms. Um, but then you're gone. You know, you're, 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 you're not actually living through, through the rest of the story um, play by play with them in the same way. So it's a, it's a strange thing because you have to come and do this deep, intimate work and then, and then sort of leave. And it reminds me of a study that a sociologist did some decades ago of flight attendants having to always display this feeling of happiness and never annoyed and never, you know. And and she said, our, our Lee Hochschild is the is the sociologist who studied that. She said, you know, you there's surface acting where you display the right emotion, and then there's deep acting where you actually try to feel that emotion. Pastors spend our days trying Ooh. to do deep acting, trying to feel what the person that we're with is feeling. But then I think what happens is that muscle gets fatigued. That, that muscle gets fatigued. And so when it comes time to our own friendships and our own relationships, we're like, yeah, I don't have anything left. I'm just going to veg out on some Netflix right now. And oh, that's just me confessing it. You know, like I, you're naming I, I get that. too much of my life right now. <laughs> yes. And, and, and it happened for me, the moment, this sort of aha moment six or seven years ago where I was working on a rule of life kind of exercise and I was writing down who are the people I'm intentionally choosing. Because so often for the pastor... People are choosing us, but we're not necessarily choosing them, you know? Uh, it's the reverse of what Jesus said. You did not choose me, but I've chosen you. With For pastors, it's the opposite, you know? I did not choose you, but you've chosen me. And uh, and I realized I don't have relationships with people that I have chosen to spend time with. I don't have uh, time marked out in my calendar. So I started changing that. 2015, I started changing that. I have a monthly call with three really close pastor friends that we talk every month from around the country. Um, I have once a quarter with some some guys that we've known each other 20, 25 years and we try to get together. And build, and once a year then, a, a retreat, an overnight. So trying to build in these moments of intentional uh, things. And then, you know, Carrie, when I think about the kinds of relationships, I think you need people who can offer you wisdom, like a sage. I think you need people who can tell you no, who carries some authority in your life. Uh, and then I think you alluded to this. I, I think you need people who, who who walk in your shoes. So somewhat on the peer level. And I recognize, as you said, it gets harder, the more successful, the larger the thing gets. But then finally, the, or if there's two more, those who can walk with you. They're like, you know, I, I, I don't know what it's like to be you, but I'll just be your friend, you know. Um, doesn't mean it's it's probably not another pastor. It's probably you know someone else. Uh, um, and then finally, the, those who can offer healing to you. And I've already said uh, stuff about that. You know, counselors, spiritual directors, whatever. But but 
So I, I guess what I'm saying is we're too fatigued to take the time for to cultivate our own relationships. And then when we do, um, we're not thinking carefully enough about the different kinds of relationships we need for wisdom, for authority, for, you know, on and on. How do you carve out time for that? Because the counter argument, I think some leaders are formulating in their head right now, Glenn, is they're saying, that sounds fantastic, but you're right. I give it all at the church. I give it all at the company. I got nothing left. I'm peopled out. I remember the first time I used that phrase, I was about four years into ministry. And I said to my wife, I'm peopled out. I can't see another person. And the churches were growing at the time and all that stuff. But, you know, how do you, because there's an endemic of busyness in pastoral culture. How do you guard against that in your own life? Because leading something significant, you must have a thousand requests. Absolutely. But I think you have to first believe that the, a healthy self is the best gift you can give your organization or the best gift you can give your church. Carrie, this is your book, At Your Best. I mean, you, yeah, yeah. you have to believe that about, you know, for fundamentally. Spend a lot and of then, time working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then I think the next thing you have to do is regularly take time out to evaluate if you are actually making those choices. Again, your practices enshrine your priorities. So we, you need to take time to evaluate your practices. And, and my wife and I, you know, over a decade ago began doing a retreat. First, it was once a year. Then it began to be twice a year. And, and we would, you know, we'd reflect on the past. We use a tool for that. We, we listen for a word for the future. But then we spent a lot of time taking an inventory of our calendar. Like, where is our time actually going? And is it going to the places that it, it, it should go? And so we, we look at five different spheres of our life, our work, our rest, our prayer, our renewal, our relationships, you know, and, 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 and to say, all right, are we doing the right things in each of those spheres that actually uh, will lead us toward this thing that God is inviting us into, the life that God is calling us into? So I'm, I'm, I'm teasing what will be a book that comes out at the end of this year called The Intentional Year uh, that my wife and I wrote. But it takes intentionality and it takes built-in rest stops, built-in checkpoints where you say, time out, let me look at this. Is that, um, is that your own framework? I'm very interested in seeing that. That'll be in the intentional year? Yeah, it's a it's a synthesis of some other, it's a sort of a creative fusion of some, some things. So the reflecting on the past tool is an ancient Ignatian prayer of examine, but applied to a whole year. Um, the, the rule of life, we sort of made our own with five spheres of life, and we call them rhythms of intentionality. Because, again, you, you don't just want, you don't want to have goals in, in five areas of your life. That's not the idea. It's not goals. It's rhythms and routines, repeated practices that actually uh, lead you that way. And then, you know, she, she's really the pro at this. She'll make sure that it turns into an e- event in the calendar, uh, even if it's read your Bible or friends over or whatever, you know. And it, because, the, you know, our lives are busy, as you said, and, and if, if it doesn't exist as, as a, if a practice doesn't exist as an event, then it doesn't actually happen. It's just another goal. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to look forward to that. And uh, okay, uh, let's talk about uh, vocation. So again, we're coming back to that theme. A lot of people are rethinking that. Our mutual friend David Kinneman says the church doesn't nearly think about vocation a lot. What are you discovering about vocation and resilience? You know, pastors are shaken about their sense of vocation, Carrie. And and we had some tracking data, you know, so for the resilient pastor 
we did some new you know surveys that went out late 2020 early 2021 but some of the questions were tracking from 2015 we were able to kind of compare notes and we asked pastors you know are you more confident than when you were first uh, when you first started less confident more confident in your calling in your vocation than when you started less confident or just as confident and basically more pastors are less confident it's 13% uh, versus 3% and fewer pastors are more confident. Uh, it's 35% now versus 65%. You know, so, you know, seven years ago, 65% of pastors were like, I'm more confident in my calling today than when I first began. And late 2020, that's like only 35% are saying that. So yeah, there's a, there's a vocational shakiness. What, do you have a theory? As to why that is, I mean, I just invented I mean, one in my head, but are there real yeah, theories? Yeah, I'd love to hear yours. I'd love to hear yours. I think it's all the stuff we've discussed: the stacking expectations, the changing cultural trends. I think pe- many pastors are saying, "I'm not equipped for that." I, I think it's easier to be confident in your calling when it's going reasonably well. Yeah, I wonder yeah. about that. Right? I think you're right. I think you're right. If you're like, well, maybe we're not growing by leaps and bounds, but we're not. The, the water is not draining out of the bathtub every week. Right, right. And so I feel fairly good about it, which is really interesting when you look at it theologically. That's not an understanding. Calling and success are not necessarily no. tied to each other. Quote, success. It's exactly right. When I think about vocational faithfulness, yeah. I think of the difference between Jeremiah and Jonah. You know, yeah. Jeremiah was vocationally faithful, but unsuccessful. You know, uh-huh. nobody really repents. <laughs> no. uh, Jonah is Jonah is vocationally unfaithful. He doesn't want to do it. Even when God, uh, you know, when even when everyone repents, he's extremely successful. Uh, everyone repents and he's like mad at God. So yeah, vocational faithfulness is not tied to outcome successfulness or whatever, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where's the hope in all this? My hope is always the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And I know that sounds like, like a pat answer, but, <laughs> but honestly, Kerry, the darkest day in history was the day that Jesus died. So the fact that that didn't all end then uh, means that, okay, God's still on the move. God's at work. So my hope is that Jesus is risen from the dead. And, and, and uh, you know, I mean, honestly, that's, that's Paul's hope. First Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus is not alive, our preaching is in vain. You know, we would be doing all of this encouragement be for nothing. Yeah. Our yeah. faith would be in vain. We could muster up faith. It'd be for nothing. But then he spends the whole rest of that chapter talking about why Jesus is risen. And then he says, so therefore be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in your work for the Lord, because your labor in the Lord will not be in vain. So my, my hope is if I trust that the resurrection happened and that this labor is in the Lord, then I've got to take a really, really uber long view. I can't take the view of five years, 10 years. I can't even take the view of my career. I mean, in the macro sense, Carrie, we're all interim pastors. That's one of Brady's favorite sayings at Dulac. You know, like we're all interim pastors because you take the macro view, somebody else is going to take over at some point. But on the other side of our resurrection, one day when there's new creation, what will we look back and see that the Lord did with all of this? So, so I've got a lot of hope in in a in a spiritual sense because of that. I think I have hope because of the historic church. I think, Carrie, these are dark days, but man, we've referenced different eras of church history already here. There's some really difficult days. The 300s were difficult days. The 1500s were difficult days. So uh, I have I have some comfort in the historic church that Jesus has been faithful to us in really dark times. I have some comfort in the global church. You know, being being from Malaysia, you're from Canada. You know, I'm living here in Colorado. 
I we're very aware of the church in other parts of the world, and and I think of the pastors in Poland right now, and I think of Christians in Ukraine right now, and I think the global church gives me a lot of reason for hope. It's it, they're, 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 you're not hearing scandals, you're seeing faithful pastors welcoming refugees and, and and caring for the least of these. And then finally, the the collaborative church. You know, we we've alluded to this, Carrie, but man, if we're going to if we're going to last, if we're going to be resilient. We're going to have to swallow our pride, reach across the street, and take the hand of, of other pastors and other leaders. And I think it, it looks like learning across denominational lines. I think it, it means traditions bleeding on each other a little bit. I mentioned the Lord's Table. I've learned that from Anglican friends. You know, so there's, there's a symbiotic influence that happens across traditions. That's one layer of collaboration. There's a local layer of collaboration where there's community par- missional partnerships. Uh, churches working together to serve people in their cities. And then there's this micro layer of collaboration where within each church, there's a healthier sense of a team dynamic rather than the heroic individual. So paint us a picture, because I, I don't think there's anybody listening who doesn't want to be resilient. I mean, nobody wants yeah. to be roadkill. Let's be honest, <laughs> right? We don't. Right. We don't, we right. don't want to crash and burn. <laughs> right. What do resilient leaders do? Resilient pastors, resilient leaders. What 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 are some of the keystone practices, yeah. habits, disciplines that make you resilient? Resilience is about recalibrating. It's about returning to a baseline of health. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you went to the doctor for a physical, he'd put you on a treadmill and get you running with sensors and all that. And he's not going to measure how fast you can run or how far you can run. He's going to measure how quickly your heart rate recalibrates, resets to norm uh, after you've run. And that's the thing for pastors. Resilience doesn't mean you don't experience stress. Resilience doesn't mean that you don't experience fluctuations. You're going to. But ultimately, resilience is not just saying, well, I can, I, you know, I can, I can do this super far and super fast. You know, resilience means, hey, when you experience turbulence, how quickly do you recalibrate? How quickly do you return? And for the Christian, that looks like returning to Jesus, to our first love. Um, John 21 Jesus finds Peter after his turbulence of his own denial. You know, you alluded to Peter earlier. And he recalibrates him not by saying, Peter, don't you love the church? Or Peter, do you love the kingdom? He doesn't He doesn't even say, you know, I'm a charismatic. He doesn't say, Peter, do you love miracles? You're about to do some great miracles. He says, Peter, do you love me? So any practice that recalibrates your heart to your first love is a practice that cultivates resilience. Hmm. There is a baseline there, right? I did write about that a little bit at the end of At Your Best. I think about it a lot. And the pandemic has taught me over the last two years, I've discovered my baseline is even quieter than I thought it was prior to the world shutting down. How how quickly should you recalibrate in a system, in, 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 in you know, a long window of time? Like, does, should that take you, should be able to recalibrate to your baseline in a day? In a month, in a week. I try to find it every week now. It's like, I need to find that place of stasis. Yes, I think you're right. And I think that's the that's the idea of Sabbath, mm. is that Sabbath is that day to re, oh, re- rest and yeah. return and recut, right? So that, you're right. But I think if you're experienced, let's say trauma, if you've really experienced something truly traumatic, okay, there's a longer journey there of healing and recovery. And so... Some pastors, you have experienced it. Some leaders, that is what you've endured, the, the, the verbal assault or maybe a sort of abuse from the church or from an elder board hurts. 
Um, that's going to be a longer journey and be patient with yourself. Uh, think of that line from that poem, be excessively gentle with yourself, you know? Um, but again, the, the, the right community returns you to Jesus and it's face to face with Jesus where that love is renewed. If you live from that center, if you live from that place, you'll look up one day and you'll say, here we are. I'm, I'm, I'm living from a place of hell. Well, the book is called uh, The Resilient Pastor. You can find it everywhere there are books. Glenn, where can people find you these days? Where where do you hang out online? Uh, glennpakium.com. That's Glenn with two N's. Pakium is P-A-C-K-I-A-M. Glennpakium.com. And I'm, I'm all on social media as at gpakium on Twitter and Instagram and all of that. It's been a great conversation. The time flew. Thank you so much, Glenn. Thank you, Carrie. Yeah. Thank you, Carrie. Wonderful to talk to you. Well, I hope that was as good for your soul as it was for mine. And if you want more, we've got show notes. You can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 492 to learn more. Want to thank our partners, ProMediaFire and the Unstuck Group for bringing you this episode. If you're a church or nonprofit leader looking to grow online, you can apply for their growth program at ProMediaFire by going to promediafire.com slash growth. And by the Unstuck Group, they got a free resource. It's called How to Restructure Your Church Staff. Just go to theunstuckgroup.com slash restructure to get your free resource today. Next episode, we've got the one and only Andy Stanley back on the podcast. As you know, he's a best-selling author and North Point Church founder. And Andy and I talk about politics and ideology and theocracy and what's going on in America and in the Western world. And uh, I'll tell you about this next week, but we were finished wrapping this up. I shot it in person in Atlanta with with Andy. The video crew and production crew came over. They said, when is, when is this airing? We need to get this to everyone we know. I hope you'll feel the same way. Here's an excerpt. You gain followers by with this message. So anybody that's looking for a message to gain followers, here's how you do it. Here's what's going to happen if you don't. And I'm going to ensure that it doesn't. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen but I'm gonna keep that from happening. So I'm gonna give you something to be afraid of, and then I'm gonna offer myself as the solution. That's how you win elections, that's how you raise money. That's never gonna change, and I'm not even trying to change that. But Christians should be smarter than that. So if you're new to the podcast, you know how to make sure you don't miss it? Subscribe, it's free, and we seem to have more subscribers every month. Welcome to all of you who are new. I hope you're enjoying these conversations as much as I do. And when you subscribe and you leave a rating and review, that's a really great way just to say thank you and also to make sure that this message gets out to other leaders you care about as well. And if you share it on social, give me a shout out and uh, we'll probably repost. We do that often. I'm pretty active on Instagram. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, TikTok and beyond. And you'll find me there as well. Also coming up on the podcast, We've got Susan Kane, Chris Bale. He read, wrote a fascinating book and I looked him up and we're going to talk about why social media isn't as divisive as perhaps we think. He really challenged my thinking. Also got Dan Pink, Albert Tate, Trip Crosby, Vanessa Van Edwards, uh, Andy Crouch, Jackie Hill Perry, and a whole lot more coming up. That's here on the podcast. And again, if you subscribe, you get that all automatically. That's what I do. I only really end up listening to the podcast that I subscribe to. So if you haven't done that yet, just hit subscribe. It's free. And if you like this episode, I would love to meet you in the Art of Leadership Academy. We launched that a couple months ago, and I'll tell you, it's going great. And here's what you get. You get a stellar community with some incredible mentors, 
all of my premium courses, access included to those. You get monthly live coaching with me so we can have a conversation like this, only it's interactive. And you also get, um, well, monthly training for your staff done for you by me and a team of other leaders. So if you're interested, go to theartofleadershipacademy.com. We've got a lot of podcast listeners jumping in there right now, and I'd love to welcome you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.